Hi, I'm Lorna Meehan, and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies. If you like your Greek myths seen through a feminist lens, enjoy creative adaptations of the classics such as the novels of Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, and agree that Hollywood hasn't made a decent movie set in antiquity since the original Clash of the Titans, this is the podcast for you. Welcome to another episode of Rebel Heroines, the podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, we delve into the stories of the women who shaped the destinies of the ancient world's so-called heroes and champion the female authors bringing these nuanced women to life. This episode is a cheeky little bonus before July's offering and we are exploring two new novels setting Greek myths outside of the ancient world. The reason why it's a bonus episode is we're revisiting Persephone and Demeter, who we delved into in episode three. But this time it's via an interview with the fantastic Matilda Liza, whose novel No Season But The Summer updates this myth into the modern world. But first, I'd like to talk about Savage Beasts by Rani Selvaraja, a retelling of Medea updated to Calcutta in the year 1757. I really enjoyed this retelling. The new setting totally works. Some things I really enjoyed in this novel, which you can't engage with to quite the same extent in the play. First, what I really liked is that we meet Medea before the plot of the original play, before it all kicks off. We get to see how she gets there, the journey from naive girl to hardened woman, all the pressures and emotions and betrayals that got her there. It doubles our empathy because we know where all her good intentions are headed, what they will amount to. However, just because we can empathise with her on this whole new level, she's by no means just another wronged heroine. We're not being asked to see her in this light where, oh, it turns out we got it all wrong. She wasn't bad. She wouldn't do that. She has nuance. Her morals are dubious. She is a passionate woman. And we see her discover where her passions can take her for better or worse. She feels very real. It also has this whole other level of Medea as a foreigner, as an outsider, as the other. 
because her status is put against the backdrop of colonialism as well. The entitlement of the men who have invaded her country, even the man she loves, is part of this world. And so her inner conflict becomes not only about her, but it's also a microcosm for the British mass cultural assault of India via the East India Trading Company. So there's this whole other level of socio-political injustice that she is also thrown into the middle of. We see why she falls for Jason as a young, sheltered and abused girl who wants to escape and wants to believe he has a better future to offer her. We also see his flaws early on and how these will add up to his betrayal. We're screaming at her, he's no good, he's so arrogant, he's just in it for himself, he's just a charmer, don't do it, Medea. While at the same time... We know that she is inevitably fascinated with him because in the beginning of the story, he is the exotic outsider. He is the man who is different from all the other men in her life, who makes her feel special, who makes her feel seen. It's got all the trappings of tragedy. The way Circe is portrayed is very refreshing and intriguing and it's very plausible yet still mysterious. And I also really liked the fact that it doesn't back down from the tragedy but it has a satisfying twist and I'm going to leave that there. So we'll talk about Medea in depth in a future episode but I just wanted to talk about this new version of Medea and encourage you to read it because it is just more proof of the many places that this genre can go. So back to Matilda and No Season But The Summer. Matilda read English literature at King's College London and then ran away to join the circus. She has performed at venues such as the National Theatre, Shakespeare's Globe and the Royal Opera House. She has two children and is the founder and director of an international movement for creative mothers and carers called Mothers Who Make. She is also associate director with Improbable, a world-renowned theatre company. No Season But The Summer takes a classical myth and turns it on its head, asking what will happen when our oldest stories fail us, when all the rules have changed. It is, above all, a book about choice. Spring and summer are my mother's time, Persephone says. Autumn and winter are my husband's. What is left for me? So without further ado, let's meet Matilda. Hello, Matilda. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank um, you very much for having me. To kick us off, so your novel is about Persephone and Demeter. To me, the pivotal thing that was always missing in that original myth, Demeter wants her daughter back, Hades wants his bride all to himself, but what does Persephone actually want? And I love how that was the backbone of this story. I love that she talks about her hunger for something she can't articulate and that that hunger keeps coming back at pivotal moments in the book. So what does your Persephone want and did you know that from when you first started writing? So she didn't know. She doesn't know what she wants initially. She just wants her 
own, you know, it's a kind of the coming of age novels, that genre. It's like a coming of age novel in some ways from Persephone's point of view, but over like 9,000 years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's a long coming sense. of age. She yeah, takes very protracted. I guess what struck me about the original, you know, the, the classical myth as I was told it is lack of closure. You know, a lot of origin myths are, which because it, it's an origin myth of the seasons, and a lot of origin myths are, you know, when they're over, it's a done deal. Like, you know, how the elephant got its trunk. Whereas in this story with the seasons, the the ending is that it's it keeps on happening. You know, she keeps on, <laughs> she keeps on going down to the dead, and she keeps on coming back, and that's what keeps on causing spring and um, summer followed by autumn and winter is that cycle of grief and renewal and I found that extraordinary that idea the very first scene I wrote before I knew that I was writing a book long before then was from Persephone's point of view uh, coming back up to earth which is still how the novel starts actually and I was just really struck from that first scene that I wrote of going my god that's a heck of a commute Mm. I mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it and it immediately had sort of contemporary resonances in terms of either and both people from kind of broken homes, you know, going between different parents and also, you know, the huge number of asylum seekers and refugees that the world holds now. So just, yeah, that drew me straight away, as well as obviously as a feminist being interested in finding her voice and identity. It was lovely to discover that along with her, you know, as she kind of, something new and has this realization of like oh this is something different this is what I want and how but again that's a transient thing it was lovely to kind of go on her very long coming of age with her I love that your Greek gods are living in the modern English countryside and that they've been there for like 9,000 years. They feel very familiar, both as the gods that we know and and then like people that you could just sort of meet in the supermarket. Like I feel like I could, I don't know, get chatting to Demeter in the queue for the post office and she'd invite me around for homemade cake and lemonade, you know. It was a conscious choice for you from the beginning to put them in our world, our time I would say it was emergent out of what I was just talking about. So out of this thing that fascinated me about about the myth that it didn't have a point of closure, that the, that the ending is this is ongoing. And there was a certain point when I realised that if I was going to really commit to the, the characters and that idea that mother and daughter had been sort of stuck in this cycle for thousands of years, I would have to bring them into the present which felt quite scary as well as exciting because it does break the mould of many classical retellings which keep things safely in the mythical past. But also exciting, well, because of the resonances, as I said, that that immediately came out of the myth for me in relation to the kind of crises we face in the world today. And I think also this sense that I that's important to say that actually we talk about mythical retellings nowadays, but that's a bit of a tautology because a myth is a myth because it's been told a few times. Yeah. You know, so, so in a way, although I have set them 
in the present and I did commit to that at a certain point I also feel like the point of the myths still being with us is that they are in some way they're already set in the present do you know what I mean they're already yeah kind of timeless aren't they in that the mythical the mythical is already present now so rather than sort of doing a retelling where I try and bring the myth up to the moment I was interested in sort of almost bringing the moment to the myth like where is the mythical element in what we're living through now and that that really fascinates me and I think that's something that makes it just work really well and again makes these kind of deities seem very familiar I'm working on my own kind of mythical retelling at the moment and it's interesting because it's not really like a a set myth I'm kind of filling in the gap with the actual myth itself and I kind of feel a bit like I'm going into kind of unknown territory but I like what you said about you know where is the myth now that's very Mm. interesting to play with isn't it because you realize how Mm. much scope there is to to fill in the gaps with these very familiar characters and you could kind of put them anyway absolutely I was really intrigued by how you characterise Hades. He wasn't what I expected, and like especially in terms of like appearance as well. And he seems sort of almost like a kind of traumatised teenager and like even a child at times who kind of needs Persephone to need him. And to me, that kind of made him more dangerous and more unpredictable because it's very different to this image we have of this dread king who opens up the ground to kidnap women. Mm. It, it made him very real for me. How did you get to your version of Hades? So maybe it's worth saying now that before I um, wrote the novel, as an adult anyway, my professional life was spent in circus and theatre. And I work with a company called Improbable and improvisation is our core practice. That was really vital to me in informing how I worked as well. So I find things out by writing them. So that first kind of scene that I talked about earlier where was imagining being Persephone coming back up to the earth came out of an improvisation essentially a written improvisation and I was interested in taking her point of view and what that unfolded Hades emerged for me in the same way because of committing to taking Persephone's point of view and being really interested so in a way the focus for me is the mother-daughter relationship those are the two voices that are present in in the novel I go between the mother and the daughter I was interested in inhabiting Persephone's voice in actually the attraction the idea of this you know it's classic completely classic in all stories where certainly myths and fairy tales where you go the forbidden thing is the thing Mm. that is actually hugely attractive so the idea of this kind of dark mysterious god that lives under the earth that is highly dangerous I imagined that that danger in some ways having a huge appeal to this what I imagined being this young girl growing up and then he emerged so I met because of my writing coming out of an improvisation, I met him at the same time as the character did, if you sort of mean. I didn't yeah. I didn't think. I didn't kind of go, Oh, I know, I'll make Hades a kind of traumatized teenager. <laughs> <laughs> but when I first wrote the scene of here her first meeting him, I guess I was interested in the idea that she might be attracted to somebody that was sort of the polar opposite to her mother because as I said for me the mother-daughter relationship is key in my novel she actually chooses to go down to the underworld initially I was interested in in a figure that represented everything her mother didn't and I think that's where 
somewhere out of the improvisation of it. That's where that different image of Hades arose from. And also really wanting to commit in a kind of mythical realism way to the idea of the underworld. I was very informed by Robert McFarlane's Underland, an amazing book about journeys actually into different territories under the earth. Mm. So I wanted the underland, underworld, to really walk the line between mythical and realistic, you know, to be informed by real places that really are under the earth. And I think, as I imagined, somebody, a god, a person that spends all their time in that environment, what emerged out of that was not a kind of terrifying dark lord, Mm. Darth Vader kind of figure, but actually someone who was quite animal-like that, you know, had to feel their way around the world, that had extraordinarily kind of sharp senses in certain ways, but also felt incredibly underconfident in other ways. So Yeah, there was like this intense vulnerability to him. Yeah. Made him very nuanced. For people who haven't read it yet, it just makes it all the more intriguing. Like, ooh, what's this Hades all about? Because there's like the original Persephone myth, and I suppose then the more kind of new age versions, shall we say, where Demeter is like more of an overbearing mother and Hades is this kind of sexy brooding romantic outsider (laughs) that Persephone goes to of her own free will and I guess it's a bit more about sort of like sexual awakening and all that and it seems like with your retelling that it kind of felt like like in between like it was kind of pulling from both Mm. of those versions yeah I think what comes out of it is You know, it's got all the meaty stuff from the original. And then like, yeah, it has these kind of feminist undertones, but again, like not in the way that you expect. And to me, the beating heart of the book is that relationship between Mm. mother and daughter. I love that bit where Demeter talks about how Persephone's behavior is confusing her because like she won't grow to me like everyone else or everything else seems to like the core of the novel was about that moment for me. They both have an equal voice in the novel that, you know, it kind of flips between their their two voices. Was was that always going to be the case for you when you were writing The Mother Daughter? It did emerge really early on, actually. When I started writing, I had a kind of theories of short prose pieces and I had no idea I was writing a novel. I didn't think I possibly could write a novel. But even in those early short pieces, there were sections from Persephone's point of view and sections from Demeter's point of view. So I think that is really core because like many novels, there's a kind of hidden memoir in it. Mm. And uh, I've certainly had a very intense relationship with my own mother. And during the course of the book have become a mother. And during the course of my writing the book, um, I'm currently sitting on my children's bedroom floor, which is where (laughs) I wrote most of the book. So I myself have, while writing the novel, have been sort of literally switching in myself between the different identities of daughter and mother. And I think I find the kind of painful push-me-pull-you of that particular form of intimacy has a strong, you know, resonance with my own life and is interesting to explore within a story. And I feel it's very present within the myth. The idea, you know, that someone would love you so much that then kind of your loss means from the daughter's point of view your loss means that the the rest of the world dies is very powerful as a starting point there are a lot of versions of the myth in which Demeter is sort of presented as a kind of you know a kind of mother earth type so much in touch with nature that she impacts it in that way that you know nature and her the natural world just responds to her because she's so green-fingered and I was really interested as I kind of got deeper into that mother-daughter relationship actually how 
sort of messed up that it was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and also how many resonances with our current climate crisis, because actually the original myth is a story in which Demeter wreaks devastating climate change because of her daughter. So the difficulty of individuating from both points of view, I think, is uh, really fascinating yeah. and difficult. I can say that as a daughter and a mother. <laughs> I love that ambiguity about just how much power Demeter still has over the seasons, like Hades kind of pulling her up on, you know, you don't have the same power Mm. that you used to. And then there's that Mm. doubt, like, did I even have it at all? And I love those nods to, you know, the climate crisis and like the, Mm. the delicate balance of nature and it was great to see like Persephone making her first friends in 9,000 years with like eco-activists and (laughs) it was great that bit where Demeter commandeers a bulldozer um, yeah I like that wow this is happening and I was wondering for you like if Demeter and Persephone were like real and kind of resurrected in this time Mm -hmm. do you think that they would be eco-warriors I guess if there is an answer to that it's in the book the Demeter that I imagined anyway, sort of at this point can't be bothered. <laughs> it's not that she's given up on the, you know, she still loves the earth, but it's like she's working towards, as Persephone's working towards a point of coming of age, Demeter's working towards a place of eldership, which to me is about a place where you don't take sides. So mm-hmm. you don't kind of uh, necessarily pick up arms and, you know, lead a protest nor is it it's not a cynical place so when I say she can't be bothered I think maybe that's not quite right it's just a place observing and yeah witnessing I guess whereas Persephone I think yeah she might you know she might get in there Mm, (laughs) she might her her and Greta might have a thing to say felt like a a nice place to leave them as that different relationship Mm. like with each other and with the world around them Wanted to ask, why do you think there's been such a resurgence in in popular culture with women retelling the women's stories of Greek myths? And what is your favourite novel of this genre? Oh, blimey. So there's a sort of few ways to respond to that. One is, I just want to repeat what I said earlier, that the idea that mythical retellings are new is really not the case. It's obviously because mm. myths have been retold and and reused by writers for kind of all through time really but of course each time that people retell they are responding to the agenda politics of our of the time that they're living in that is our time in the sense that you know really it's kind of shockingly recent that more women authors started became being kind of recognized being present you know so I think we're still catching up when I was I was a literature student in the 90s and Angela Carter's Bloody Chamber. I don't know if that counts as an answer to your other one about kind of what's what's my favourite retelling, but that for me was where it began. Mm. Um, it's a collection of short stories with a kind of novella at the start. It's more fairy tales than myths, but she was really leading the game in terms of yeah. feminist reinvention, reappropriation of those old stories think these are kind of mythic times we're living through there's so much that is terrifying mm-hmm. um, and unstable and uncertain I think we are reaching to those stories because they you know timeless stories and making them of our time because that's what we do that's how we try to make sense of change you know 
Do you have any other Greek myth-inspired novels in the pipeline? I have. I'm very slow. I'm very slow, but I am starting work on an Icarus-related one. Again, with a, you know, a probably Icarus's sister or Icarus himself ends up being <laughs> of a different gender. I'm not, I don't think he does actually yet, but, um, you know, don't hold your breath. It'll take me a while. <laughs> like, you know, we've made it real now, so you'll have to finish oh, it, it at some point. It's going to happen. It's <laughs> there you go. Happen. Good motivation. I, I'm very determined. I see them through to the end, but I'm just, I can't, I don't know how people manage to churn them out as fast as they do. So we are going to have a extract from near the beginning of the novel. So take it away, Matilda. Okay, so this is from Persephone's point of view, and she's just coming up from underground to the surface of the earth at the very start of spring. I approach the surface from beneath the life and death tree. My mother's name for you. One dusk, 9,000 years ago, Hades cut the ground open here to find me searching for him by this tree. Since then, its trunk has thickened and split so that when I pull myself up onto the earth, I will be inside it. Needles and soil block the way. I dig upwards, feel roots holding, snapping until my hands unearth a faint light and I see them my hands, for the first time in many months. I wrestle myself through the crack, head, torso, legs, and then I'm out on the ground inside the tree. I remember leaning on it, hungering for Hades. The utter dark of him is in my body as I crawl forwards like a baby, through the split in the trunk, over the yew-needled earth, emerge into the woods and look up. A man is standing in the sky. I kneel, put my palms over my eyes, give them back the dark, because I think the shock of light and colour must have made this vision. I take my hands away and look again. He is still there. He is tall, big-booted, big-bearded, wearing a thick coat. He has no wings. There is nothing light about him, and yet he is high up, level with the topmost branches of the oak trees opposite. The only man I know who belongs in the sky is my father. Father Sky, they called him. To me, he was as absent as air. I used to stare up at the sky and imagine he was watching me with eyes so wide and blue I could not see him. He was the opposite of my husband, who is all touch. My father was all eyes, no body. No body, that is, until the rare times when he rolled up in a flashing rage, thunderbolts at the ready, crack, boom, all eyes on him and on his electricity. Then he would be gone again, vanished into blue. This quiet, heavy man is not my father. Now, as I remember how to look, I can see that the man is standing on a thin rope, holding another in his hands, and that these extend between the two oak trees in front of me. He slides sideways with feet and hands along these lines. I see, too, where he is heading, 
for in the arms of the oak is a structure like a huge nest, as if a species of giant bird had come to land there. The nest is dome-shaped, a great green covering over it, resting on a wooden platform strapped between the branches. I see more of these structures, another in the other oak, one in the pine, one in the ash to the right of the yew. I look further through the woods. Something has happened to the trees. Someone has wrapped them up. Huge white nets extend from their trunks, swaddling their branches, covering their crowns, a beech, a silver birch, another oak. Each have their branches bundled up. They look like ghosts, branch, bud, first leaves seen through a veil, as if someone were trying to stop the spring by bagging up the trees. I hear a woodpecker in the oak opposite, but otherwise the woods are quiet. Usually the birds are jubilant. Here I am, keener to return than I have been for years, and I have stepped up into a world where it seems trees are not allowed to leaf, birds to land, and men may not walk freely on the ground. I look back at the sky man. He is nearly at the oak nest now. He turns for a moment, looks down at me, frowns. It is hard to make out his face against the glare of sky. He lifts his hand in greeting but says nothing. I raise a hand back in return. He reaches the oak and stoops to disappear inside the green shelter on the platform. I walk on, through the woods, past more captured trees who can no longer whisper in the wind, though whoever tried to stop their tongues this way knows nothing. My mother taught me long ago that trees talk underground. Lovely. Thank you. Thank you so much, Matilda, for sharing that extract. And thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was great to have you on. You're very, very welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening. Feel free to like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can find me under Lorna Meehan or Rebel Heroines Podcast. I'm also on Twitter at rebel underscore heroines. If you'd like to get in touch, send me any pre-recorded poetry or drama on theme, you can email me at lornaemehan at gmail.com. Please do share the podcast with anyone who might be interested. And I'll be back in July where we will be going international, not just with poetry, but with an interview with USA-based theatre company Nine Muses, bringing their original Greek myth-inspired musical to this year's Edinburgh Fringe. You won't want to miss that. See you soon.